Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much for joining me today for another episode of Talking Cloud. Now, you know, this is where we talk about cloud, cloud computing, anything and everything cloud, cloud security, cloud compliance, DevOps, DevSecOps, SaaS, PaaS, FAS. I could keep going with all these crazy acronyms, but it's all related to computing in the cloud. And as you all know, I am no expert, but I work hard and I know where to find experts. And today we've got, I mean, just an outstanding boots on the ground expert. Unlike some of the past guests that I've had on the show, today I've got someone I've known, well, for a long time. I actually hired this guy when he was 19 years old, and he was a stud then and still is. I mean, I'm not kidding. The guy was instrumental in the early days of setting up the website, the user portal, what's called user center for what's now a multi-billion dollar security company. And I mean, the guy is just awesome. And what I always liked about John is any time you were with John, whether it was an internal business meeting or, or if you were on an external meeting talking with a customer, and there would be a question, John didn't just see that two-dimensional surface question. He understood why it was being asked. I mean, he really had an incredible business acumen that he tightly coupled with just a spectacular technical development uh, experience and background. And so he's been a key guy for me, even when I owned my own company for a while, helping me with my website, my own user center. I'm thrilled to have him because he's been very active in the industry. And I just, I'm really excited to have John Freeman with me today. John, thank you so very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Grant. And uh, I, I hope I deserve that introduction. But when you hired me at 19, I'd, I'd actually been doing computers for about 10 years by then. So, you know, I definitely had to reach that level. But it I'm excited. Showed. John, it showed. You know, I mean, that was really evident. That's why you got hired. Now, I guess just for reference and context, it's fair to say you're not 25. No, no, not 25. Uh, I'm going up there. You know, I, I woke up uh, the other day, I was 40, and I felt the aches and pains. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> this is what this is going to be like. That's funny. I'm thrilled to have you here. I, why don't you take a minute and just talk about maybe your background, your history. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about how we met years ago and what you're doing currently and some of your passions and activities. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in technology since, you know, I was nine, 10 years old. And, you know, I've gone through several different iterations of that, different phases. And, you know, going from, you know, very early internet, you know, 1992, three, Tim Berners-Lee building the web. And, you know, I was in high school in that time. And so we had a computer lab and we worked on Linux back then, which was amazing. I just had these great opportunities. And one of the things I've said is just having a teachable spirit. Um, you know, that's been really, really important to me. And I always seek to find information, you know, I'm a student of the world. And so going through, you know, working. I started my first computer company when I was 15 years old. Uh, I was tired of dishwashing. That was my first job. So where, I started a computer company. Where, where I, I don't mean to interrupt you, John, but I'm curious, you know, you talk about that learning spirit, that desire to seek out the answers. Where, where do you think that came from? So, you know, I have to, to think back. I've just had very good mentors. I've had, uh, you know, a desire to learn just a natural 
inquisitive attitude. You know, a lot of people say that they, you know, <laughs> you got the blinking VCR clock and some people can, can help, you know, set that. I'm the person that took the clock apart and ah. took the VCR apart and put it back together. Yeah, there, there are other people like, uh, uh, my, my brother's in-laws that, you know, put, put tape over it. Actually, I take that back. What they did, get this, talk about being concerned about uh, their fixed income. They would unplug the VCR. Well, because it was taking it was taking electricity to power that flashing LED. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see that. You know, it's been interesting. But yeah, throughout my, my high school, I, I have to go back. One of the, the blog articles I wrote very early was about a teacher that I had there. And one of the things that he taught us was how to learn. You know, he did electronics, he did computers, and we had to challenge to get into his course. And at that time, I'd already been programming for a few years, you know, at 14, 15. And I came to his computer lab and he, he sat me down with a friend of mine and he said, okay, show us what you can do. And in just a few minutes, we wrote from scratch screensavers. If you remember back then when the uh, CRTs would burn in, yeah, we wrote some really cool screensavers. And he looked at it and he goes, well, I got some good news and I've got some bad news. He said, the good news is I can give you three hours a day to work on this. He says, the bad news is I can't teach you anything. <laughs> you're, already, <laughs> you're already ahead of where we're at. And so what was nice about that is I did have those three hours a day, but he taught us how to learn. He was actually selling himself a little bit short. He, sure. he knew the resistor color codes. And so I learned how to do uh, electronics and, you know, we'd go, hey, what's the resistor code for X, Y, Z or whatever, you know, Crazy. and he'd say, well, how, how do you learn that? Where do you find that? And so it's taught me before Google how to yeah. find information. It reminds me the way my mom kind of instilled the self-learning in us. You know, I've got four brothers, right? We're first four of us are like Irish twins. And, and when we were young, it was far simpler to blow a big brass police whistle yep. and have all of us hear it and know it's time to come in the house. And she laid down the law, man. If you hear this whistle, it's time to come home immediately. I remember one of us asked, what if we can't hear the whistle? And I love the answer. I guess you're too far then. <laughs> and yeah. that, uh, you know, that was, that was, I mean, it's funny. I still remember it today. Yeah, that's self-correcting. Yeah, exactly. I like it. Exactly. <laughs> it's on you, man. It's on you. It's not on me. I'm blowing the whistle. It's up to you to hear it. Yeah, it's it's been amazing, you know, that teachable spirit to continue on there. You know, I have a 16-year-old, and it's amazing how much they know at 16 now. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> back when I was growing up, you know, I wrote my my first repeater control software for ham radio. I'd gotten my ham radio license, and this is before cell phones were really ubiquitous. And you could make telephone calls over them. And so I wrote a system in BASIC that would interface with a phone system and a circuit board through the parallel port. So these were all these kind of things that we did in just in high school, right? So years before uh, you had even met me and I wrote my first bug. <laughs> it was it was eye-opening because, you know, I was using the the radio and it was late in the evening. I probably had a bedtime and I went to to key up the radio and the the system on the other end wasn't answering anymore. And the next day I had gone in and there's a a hardware cut off that it actually had, it had tripped because the transmitter was on too long. Mm. And, you know, I debugged the bug and got down to it. And what it ended up happening is I was counting the amount of time that the transmitter was on and the timer value had rolled over to negative numbers. Oh. <laughs> and so <laughs> it didn't know. And so that's where I learned things like absolute value you yeah. know, in your programming and, and, you know, bounds checking. And you think about buffer overflows now and all these things that people were exploiting. You know, I had learned at, you know, 14, in this system, one of those, those lessons, you know, about, about range checking, you know? Yeah. 
Well, that you know, it's interesting. You hit on a point that maybe we can kind of shift the conversation a little bit, and um, you know, the simplicity or seemingly so of the exploits years ago, relative to what's going on today, and in particular, the changing infrastructure that facilitates the more complex and sophisticated uh, attacks. And what I'm talking about is the fact that we do have the cloud in just about everything. You know, I mean, anybody that has a strategy for their business, the cloud's part of it from an IT perspective. If it's not, I mean, I can't imagine one company not having the cloud uh, as a part of their strategy. So, you know, what do you see and what do you recommend, I guess, just from a architectural design perspective to minimize your, your vulnerability to this complex cloud world we're in? It's a, it's a fantastic question. And, and it's one of those things that I struggle with. So fast forward to, you know, current times, I, my day job, I'm a senior software architect for a, a medical software company. And we do about 10% of the medical claims in the entire country. Holy and moly. So, really? Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, managing an information system that big, we talked about balance checking, Wow. you know, yeah. When we have billions of claims in the system, we've actually rolled over the, the maximum integer size and we've had to go to different things. And so one thing I would say about that is to try to use as much as possible built-in libraries to the, the language or system rather than writing it yourself, right? So cross-site request forgery, um, cross-site scripting, you know, yeah. all of the stuff that, that's in OWASP, they have protections against those items in most of the frameworks, a lot of times what happens when we're at a company that's bleeding or leading edge, we will be making our own frameworks. And I've experienced that a lot in, in some of the companies. Before web services were possible, we had to, had to build a web service interface. And so mm -hmm. that had its own custom security layers and all that. And so you look at SSL even, right? You know, how quickly that uh, moves along. In healthcare, it's, it's actually been fairly serious that we've had to move up from TLS versions. You know, our TLS version may actually break some of our clients that want to connect to us, but we just have to explain to those clients that we have to make this change for yeah. the security of our users and, and our information. You know, if you've got a cipher that's easily compromised, I mean, what's the point? Exactly. I mean, exactly. It's, it's, it, it, it makes no sense. So, so do you think that the, the build-your-own approach is is it because they're unaware that the libraries are natively available? Why do you think that you're not seeing more of that uh, going on? I think in the last seven, five, seven years, uh, we've had a lot more of that with, you know, being able to bring in a library or component easily, you know, uh, through NuGet, GitHub, all of these different places where we can share code that it's allowed us to start to leverage other modules and other piece of code easier and I think developer education is a lot easier as well. So, you know, you can go with YouTube and conferences and other things to get that information that you need. Whereas originally, somebody may not have known. Uh, early in my career, you know, I had a, a bug that had happened. And it actually shut down our entire email system because we were emailing errors when they had happened. And you know, it just happened to be when your web service gets 30,000 requests an hour, <laughs> you sent 30,000 emails. And it was uh, kind of overwhelmed the system a little. Oh, yeah. It took the CEO's email out. And we, we heard about it for sure. And what was interesting about it was the bug was in the yesterday function. And I said, well, 
well, there's, there is no yesterday function, you know, the engineer told me. Well, we went and looked at it, and he had written his own function to calculate dates. Oh. Instead of using the built-in operating system function to do a data add minus, and he did a wonderful job. It was hundreds of lines, and he had taken into account things, you know, dates that had, you know, 28 days, 30 days, and so on. But this just happened to be a leap year. Mm. And when it went to do the yesterday, it blew up and, you know, the system went down. So, you know, a lot of times I don't think it's um, – we, we tend to over-engineer or we tend to under-engineer things. I think it's that porridge, you know, just right, right. Uh, trying to, to find that equilibrium. And then keeping up on things like OWASP, that's been a real popular thing at our company is to, to make sure that all the engineers know those common – attack vectors and using outside third parties to help us find and, and surface those locations. Tell me about your use of the cloud or how your company is using the cloud. I mean, I suspect just the mere fact that you're processing 10% of the country's claims, the cloud's involved in getting it to you, right? Because it's really the <laughs> yeah. internet, right? It's been very interesting, actually. You know, in healthcare. One of our CEOs years back had said, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that um, – let me see if I can <laughs> capture this right. He says, you know, I'm very glad we're not in another industry because we've been run over several times by now. That said, you know, that was just several years ago. In the last five years, there's been just a transformation from a data center first to a cloud first mentality. Mm. It used to be we would get RFPs that would say, you know, how much of this is outside your data center, how much is in the cloud, and they the clients didn't appreciate that. Yeah. And now I think it's going the opposite. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, yeah, their I mean, EMR system really, is in the I cloud. Mean, that, yeah. That's remarkable that it goes from, you know, the no way to what do you mean, why not? Right? I mean that that's significant. Exactly. Do you have a infrastructure that's facing doctors, insurance providers? I mean, give me an appreciation because I suspect there must be some SaaS solutions involved. Uh, there is I mean, a maybe. lot. And it's, it, it is tightly regulated. So we deal with HIPAA and high tech and SOX compliance and ENAC and other certifications that we have to keep up. We do, uh, to answer your prior question a little bit, we do have uh, mostly an Azure presence. So we work in Microsoft Azure. I, I jokingly call that the gentleman's cloud. Uh, you know, But personally, I've had AWS for seven or eight years now and running an IaaS and, and PaaS tools in that. And so I have familiarity in all those areas. We have several pieces of our infrastructure out there. You know, We're a, a conglomeration of 14 different software companies came together through buyouts and acquisitions. We've had several different brands over the years, and so I've been with the same company 13 years, but the, the logo has changed several times, as you've experienced as well. And I, so I have to ask, is it easier to acquire and, and consume another organization when you're cloud-based as opposed to, to not being? Uh, there's absolutely great opportunities for that, yes uh, and no. So if your data is already you know, in a third-party data center, it's a lot easier to set up a VNet or some other relationship in between and, and get things talking, I think, than it is to a corporate LAN. At the same time, the, the number one thing that has been a struggle, I would think, is actually integrating users and users' account with different authentication systems. Hmm. You look at, you know, my username and uh, Yahoo versus Google or something else. And, you know, when Yahoo acquires a property, they do a pretty good job of incorporating it very quickly right. and merging. 
in healthcare, that's been hard. You know, some system might use regular names, one might use email addresses and not allow um, systems like that. So the integrations of users has been more challenging. That's interesting that because that wouldn't have been my first thought. The good news is in a lot of healthcare technologies, you have standards, you know, I have 837, 837P, you've got 277s, you've got these different claim form claim formats. Mm-hmm. So there's been you know, HL7, you've got fire standards. So you've got systems that help you interop. But when it comes to actually integration between applications, we struggle with the same things, you know, whether somebody's calling directly to my database from their application, you know, to get data, because that was easier. So we have to cut down some of those things. But one thing that's really important from healthcare, cloud, cloud security, is the employee that terminates, you know, when an employee terminates an organization, we want to be able to terminate their access in our system, our third party system. And so when we're using Active Directory Federation, things like that, and, you know, Azure authentication, it makes it a whole lot easier for us to maintain a level of security just from the the simple social engineering stuff where we've left an account on or something like that. Well, you know, you are hitting on something, John, that I think riddles companies. And, and it is this cholesterol, right? This lingering presence of people that are long gone. And I'll give you an example. Dropbox. You get acquired, but there's still Dropbox account. And, you know, I need noticed uh, just the other day a shared folder that has people in that folder that aren't even with the company anymore. And it's not a security risk, frankly, because he or she doesn't have the credentials to log in and so on. But it's still cholesterol that's there. I mean, he should be gone. He's not available to be part of or she's not available to be part of that group any longer. And I suspect it gets much more complex when you have to worry about all these SaaS solutions and and other cloud-based infrastructures that aren't yours. How do you clean your people out? (laughs) It's very interesting. You know, we, again, we we dance this fine line between high security and convenience. And just like you said, that account that maybe is two years expired, what was interesting, what you brought up earlier about the attack vectors and the simplicity of attacks, it used to be that if a password was good for 10 years, that was good enough, right? Right. Now I can set 10,000 machines on that password for, you know, a few dollars an hour and I can get that thing cracked in, in a day or two. Yeah. And so if, if this account is two years old, who knows how many breaches that that account or that password had been through. And so making sure that customers change their password often is often received with some pushback. But at the same time, we have to show that, you know, even a password is almost not enough these days. That's yep. what we're experiencing. Yep. Well, I don't know about you, but I know myself personally, you know, I used to always use passwords and I've definitely moved to phrases about how many dog biscuits my dog ate at lunch or, you know, just something goofy that I remember that's far more characters than I think most people have. Yeah. If you get a chance, I would recommend everybody uh, look up on Google, correct horse battery staple. And the reason I bring that up is because it, it deals with using multiple words. One thing that we're finding is that it's not the number of special characters, the cases and all those things in your password. It really comes down to length. So for every character that you add to a password, it adds, you know, 50, 60, 70 times complexity. So if it was going to be one year to crack that password that was, you know, eight or nine digits, if you add just two more digits, it can be a millennium. Very interesting. 
because it's all just algorithms going through until it gets a ging on to the next one, right? I mean, I, I, I have this image of, of the safe cracker. When I was a kid, I used to take apart locks and do things like that. And it is amazing how similar it is. One of the algorithms that I ran across that's, that's deep down into you know encryption algorithms you don't think about um, was a constant time string comparison. And you're, okay, what, what does that mean, right? And I, I thought the same thing the first time I looked at it. And I did some research on it. And what was happening is computers, you know, verify data left to right. And so as you're checking that password, there is a minor you know, nanosecond difference in between getting one character right or two characters or three, just like the tumblers in a lock. Yep. And so what we'd had to do as software engineers is, again, we talk about using built-in functions. You know, if you're using the regular equals function, it's designed for performance, so it's going to drop out as soon as it can. Right. And there were some exploits that were shown that could actually find a password using this time. So the time string comparison, the constant time string comparison, what it would do is it would set a flag of yes or no, and it would go all the way through all the digits every time. And it's just this minor, minor, minor difference. But it, it closes an attack vector that yeah. I had never even known existed. And so it's it's learning information like that in my career and being able to pass it on to the engineers that I work with and my colleagues that's really made us a better organization. Yeah. There was some research that was published from Checkpoint Research that I thought was really fascinating. A hacker can send a message to a WhatsApp chat group and every one of the users on that group whatsapp crashes and oh, and no. and so you quit and you try to run it again and it crashes and the only way to fix it is to uninstall and reinstall it's it's amazing the guys on the other side of the fence they're always looking to exploit our boo-boos aren't they oh yeah every, every time and that's something that in healthcare specifically you know, the, the 1996 HIPAA Act, that helped us a lot. Um, you know, that brought a, a level to healthcare that was probably expected. You assumed your doctor wasn't sharing your information with a third party without your consent. You would assume that there was not your public information, your health information posted out online. Meaningful use and other, you know, things that have followed on that have actually incentivized. One of the things that was interesting about the company that I'm at now is we were one of the first to actually electronically process claims. And we still in the basement had a, a clearinghouse that, that published and printed manual claims, amazing volumes of printers that print these things out. It looks like, you know, the back of the New York Times or whatever, when you see the newspaper printing, mm. because they would print out, you know, still physical claims. But we were one of the first and we'd actually get a discount for doing a electronic submission and a mm. little bit faster payment because days AR outstanding is a number which all hospitals live by because it's it's the amount of capital that they're going to have to raise because the doctor still wants to get paid, the nurse still wants to get paid, the lights still have to be paid yep. even before you've been paid back. So that was the the origin, but now everybody's doing it electronically and you actually get a penalty if you do it in paper still. So it's kind of flipped completely over. So you're absolutely right. You're not on the clipboard anymore. You're actually incentivized to be digital and you'll get you know essentially a fine or a penalty if you're still submitting on paper. But that introduces intentional or unintentional the possibility that data goes sideways. I mean, at least I felt like that clipboard I knew was on that piece of paper and okay, it can go sideways too, but when it gets into the cloud, it gets processed electronically, that's where there's the possibility, right? Absolutely. And you know, with my engineers, it's been interesting because a lot of times 
HIPAA is used as a, a shield of doing something maybe that's complex or hard. And I, I try to incentivize them to say, no, you know, HIPAA gives us a responsibility. But if we're working on a level three, level four issue and the engineer has to get involved and we have to look at that claim because that's the one that's doing it, nowhere in HIPAA does it tell me that the engineer can't do that. They just have to, you know, obviously document and log that. And logging is very important, you know, actually being able to show who was getting the information at the time. So there's a lot of standards that are requiring us to do that. But it's it's absolutely open an attack vector that that we have to be careful of. And it's one of the things that makes it uh, a little more diligent. I think you look at Facebook and Twitter and other things, and you can kind of, you can throw new things at the wall and see what sticks. In healthcare, we do have to move a little bit slower because there are those gates and those checks that we have to follow to make sure that we're doing our due diligence for our own customers. Got it. Very interesting. So, you know, when we talk about... uh, uh, getting up into the cloud and healthcare, you know, one of the things lately we're hearing a lot about is zero trust, right? This new way of thinking about your architectures. I'd love to hear a boots on the ground practitioner, just kind of your view of this shift away from what I call the janitor mentality. Oh, you're on the IT team? Okay, here you go. And you have access to everything. And this move to what are you building? Okay, you need access to this container and, and this server and this database and that's it. Are you seeing that happening in your environment? Is that something you believe is a, a trend that we'll continue to see? Absolutely. I, I think that we have two sides to this. Uh, one side is the infrastructure. You know, We used to be able to control via access controls who can come into the data center, who can get near our cage, You know, who has keys to the locks the biometrics, all that kind of stuff. So there was a physical level of security that we now are relinquishing when we trust somebody like Amazon or Azure to do the work for us. And so that's one layer that when you know that the infrastructure itself may be under attack, that was always the thing at Checkpoint in other areas, you know, if you can physically access the computer, it's very, very hard to secure it. And so now we have to think about how we encrypt our data that is in the public cloud You know, encryption at rest was one of those things that was a compliance. And so you would think that most people were doing that, but a lot of times they weren't. And so this is one of those things that's helped. As far as um, roles, role-based access controls, all those kind of things, I think we're seeing that. Um, Azure has done an incredible job, and I think it's one of their very neat differences of Azure to AWS that Azure really started out with very, very fine-grained controls. And you give and you elevate what they need. Uh, whereas my experience with AWS, and I know that they're catching up, you know, has been that you had a lot of controls and now we're going to add in other things, you know, identity accounts and things that we can use to to add that. So I absolutely agree with that. It is painful at times. You know, I want to go out and see what's happening and I've got these great dashboards and it's not letting me get to those resources. But it's really about granting those controls only when we need them and elevating your controls when you need them. That's incredibly important in security. A good example of that is just your home router. You know, most home routers that had the default password printed on them, if you went to a malicious website, they could literally just put an image tag that had, oh, reset my router password or or load this spyware into my router. And attacks have happened like that. If, if I've got the keys to the castle for, you know, a, a billion and a half claims or more, yeah. you know, I don't want it to reset my Azure portal firewall rules because I'm surfing on some other website. Even though I have access through several layers, 
I need to be able to do privilege identity management and actually, you know, elevate my privileges and my role to what is needed at the time and only for a specific duration. So I want to touch on something. I often speak about the cloud and I say they're all, they meaning Google, Microsoft, Amazon, they're all summiting the same mountain in the context of public cloud, uh, but they're taking different paths. And the example I give is the stark difference between sacred cows and no sacred cows and the benefits they've turned those sacred cows into. And I'm speaking specifically of Active Directory within Microsoft is a sacred cow, Office 365. But these literally became weapons, Trojan horses for them, where Amazon, as they built their salute, they didn't have any of these sacred cows, but they also didn't have any of those interests in the infrastructure heretofore. So it's interesting how they've solved those issues differently. And it sounds like Microsoft's maybe a step ahead, at least for the enterprise. I think they are. Like I said, it's it's kind of the gentleman's cloud, the way I look at it. Now, that doesn't mean that they're on the bleeding edge as much, but Microsoft is an amazing company uh, and an amazing story, really. You know, you look at Um, the Xbox, the original Xbox, you know, it was their first foray, their first toe in the pool. And it was a, it was a device It worked. And then they came out with the Xbox 360. And for 10 years, you could play a a game or even new titles on it. And it looked wonderful. And they iterated and it was on a hardware platform. And I think that they do that in almost every space that they go in, you know, the original teams, you know, that we started using was limited, right? And now the new Microsoft teams can do so much more. And I think that their strength is their iterative ability. They have a preview portal for Azure, for example. So as I'm working in the portal, you know, original portal, they had everything was classic, right? That was their, their Xbox original. And then when they went on, you know, to this new resource manager and the deployment templates and all these things that they've, they've added, they've really iterated well. And that preview portal allows me to see what's coming next, Mm. but use it with my live data. So I can start to see that. And that deployment model is incredibly hard to do as a software engineer. I know I want to show you my new next beta version, but I want to use real live data with it. That's a real deployment challenge. And they've really capitalized on that. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's your fun watching the evolution, and it's really exciting how the industry continues to evolve. So what's your thought on containers, serverless, fast, kind of some of this, what seemingly is the fastest growing segment in the cloud? But before you answer, John, I need to pay the bills, so hang on just a second. How well are you protected in the cloud? How fast do you move when the cloud moves at the speed of DevOps? And do you have the confidence you see everything you need to see, good or bad? Checkpoint Software. Cloud with confidence. See it. Control it. Secure it. Okay, we're back. Faz, Paz, all this cool stuff. Containers, fastest growing in the cloud. What's your thoughts? It is absolutely doing that. And we're looking at all of those technologies really to augment our solution. And I think there's some some good examples out there of companies, you know, spinning down the uh, resources that they don't use on the weekends and saving millions of dollars of infrastructure. And so wow. when I'm doing my cost models, 
you know, Azure is not going to uh, be a, a major cost saving initiative in most companies because to us, we would rather have security over cost. You know, there are always going to be trade offs. I think what we look at is the deployment flexibility and the scalability. So when certain yep. products in our infrastructure you know, need that ability to scale, we want the flexibility to eventually get to feature-driven releases. I'm looking at, at Docker specifically and Kubernetes for doing a feature-driven release and that A-B testing. And so, like we mentioned, you, know, you, could, you could deploy your new version during the day with zero downtime, which is incredibly important to an ER. You know, we have a, a patient access product, and that product can't be down. You know, yeah, People yeah. can't get into the hospital. They can't get their insurance and eligibility information through it. Yeah. I can't even get their appointment if our system is down. And so that's where it's incredibly important for us to be able to leverage these technologies mm. to get to that hopefully 100% uptime guarantee. Yeah, that's amazing. It's really extraordinary. You know, I, I had Evan Kerstel as a guest on my last podcast, and he was talking about a company he's familiar with that's actually utilizing Amazon and Microsoft and Google and offering guarantees, contractual will pay you guarantees if the infrastructure ever goes down by leveraging uh, the commitments of all of the cloud providers and their commitment to never going down. They figure if I've got, if I've got it replicated in Amazon and I'm running on Microsoft and I also have a backup on Google, the chances of all of them failing at the same time is pretty unlikely. <laughs> yeah, you know we've we've learned lessons, and I could give you uh, stories from the data center of the what we call the never events, right? You would never expect your transfer switch to fuse itself in the middle of a switch from generator to, to live power back and forth. And that happened to us. Oh, <laughs> you know, no kidding. Our, our UPSs were drawing enough load that when it went to switch over, the, the contacts fused. And oh my God. You know, then you've got to get an electrician in there. And then you've got, you know, we were running on generator for a week as they built a new transfer switch to send to us uh, wow. from the manufacturer. And so things like that happen when you're running on-premise. I think one thing I would say about the cloud that's really important for people to understand is it's not just another data center, but it's also not a panacea, right? It's not going to solve all your problems. And just like you mentioned, distributing yourself among different cloud vendors is going to have an effect to increase your ability to stay up during one of those never events. Right. You know, Active Directory breaks at Microsoft and Azure and takes out a large portion of Azure. I've had that happen before. Yeah. And you know, it's multi-region outages and failures. They're becoming fewer and far between, I think, because we're starting to see some of these things. And I think Azure and AWS you know, were new and they are learning what it's like to run a massively distributed worldwide data center. And so, yeah, Docker and Kubernetes and other things can help to abstract you from the underlying layer. Mm -hmm. And we look at them um, not just as a, an escape to the cloud because we've got you know great IT people. We've got great data centers you know, with all the redundant connections and everything that we need. But Kubernetes allows us to scale out to the cloud as we need if we're going to store additional data. And the nice thing about that is we in, in healthcare – have had to purchase at the you know 80th percentile or whatever it is for our storage for everything to give us some headroom. Yep. Whereas with the cloud, it gives us that scalability that we don't have to worry if we get a large new client or an influx that we can scale up to the level that yep. we need to. Yep. And conversely, save money if you don't have the demand. Yeah, absolutely. And I was doing a costing exercise the other day. And, you know, it's interesting because there are some fixed base costs in Azure that you have to, you know, traffic managers, VNets, things like that. But once you get to a predictable level of scale, it's really nice to say this is my cost per client. 
I can reduce my cost. One of the things that I love about our company is that we help doctors and hospitals get paid. And, you know, one of our uh, products that I'm responsible for looks for missing charges on bills. And <laughs> I thought about it the other day and I said, mm. is that really a good or a bad thing that I found <laughs> that they didn't bill you for the right thing? And, and I thought about it some more and I said, you know, in the end, it's good because yeah. the person that got the service is actually now paying for the service. The insurance company that was going to guarantee the service is actually now funding for the service. And a lot of times that can be a money that's lost. But, you know, the American healthcare system, we run, you know, on a two to three percent net margin. And if you look around, the only other companies that really survive and do that at scale are things like Walmart. I was going to say grocery stores, maybe. I mean, that's maybe. just pathetically low. Yeah. And a lot of times we would come in on a contingency basis where we would say, we will take a portion of what we say. When it was allowed, a lot of times it was actually statutorily disallowed. Yeah, too bad, because that's a brilliant strategy. Ross Perot, I think, was the one that first did that years ago, and IBM uh, had an uproar. This was back in, like, the 60s or 70s. So I want to take a second, John, and I want to hear about the net guy. Don't you have a podcast, or uh, <laughs> what's, what's going on? I do, actually. So last year, you know, I'd been in, in technology you know, professionally developing in teams for over 20 years and, you know, with, with technology for over 30. And, you know, I said, I've, I've got to put some of these thoughts down. I've got to get it out of my head. And so I had a website called thenetguy.com and I started a software blog and I started to put about some of those things that we've talked about already, you know, the teachable spirit, building effective teams, you know, and all of these things that, that I wished I had known that led me to, to doing this weekly blog. And I said, okay, you know, I, I want to try doing some YouTube. And I did uh, a net, the net guy on YouTube and I did a lot of technology videos and it, it was eye opening to, to learn what was involved in, in being a creator or a maker. I've always been making things, whether it's 3d printing or, you know, building websites or building, you know, things like this. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I sat down and talked to my wife about was the amount of hours. I, I have five kids. <laughs> so we're a blended family and it, it was taking a long time to do these videos. When you see a YouTube video, remember it's at least an hour per minute of published video. So if you see a 10 minute video, that was 10 hours of work yeah. um, for the, the person that was producing it. And so I said, you know, I, I think that other people uh, may be better suited to do those technology videos in YouTube. What can I do and what can I contribute? What can I use my creative gene for? And I said, you know, I want to start a podcast and I don't want it to be just like every other software engineering podcast. I don't want it to be, you know, just how do you write code? I wanted it to be the everything else. And so I started the Building You podcast. It's at buildingupodcast.com. It's going to release here in just a couple of weeks. And I've been interviewing uh, leaders and engineers and, and everybody that I can find in software to talk about the everything beyond the code. And so that's a very exciting thing that I've got going on and that I would, uh, you know, seek people that want to get that, that next level. And we'll talk about some things like security is really important. We'll talk about some themes like that, um, but also the job interview process. You know, I think that that's something that uh, is ripe for innovation and, you know, somebody's going to have to Uber, I think, the uh, hiring process. <laughs> that's, that's a good way of, of putting it. You know, well, one thing I love is the logo. Uh, so the URL, the net guy, is that where, is that where yeah, they're going to go? You can find all of that. If you go to the uh, you'll find access to the blog, you'll have access to the YouTube channel and very, very soon it'll have redirects to the, the building you podcast. 
Cool, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to listen. Maybe I can get a chance to be a guest. I'd love to have a further conversation with you, John. This has been really enlightening. I really, really appreciate all your time. I hope that we'll have you back soon. And thanks very much for being on Talking Cloud today. I would love to. Thank you, Grant. Hey, so thanks, everybody. I really appreciate you joining me today on Talking Cloud. John, thanks. It was great having you. We hope to have you back again and again and again. Tell your friends. Make sure you subscribe, and we'll see you again next time on Talking Cloud. Yeah.